you'd like to open your Bibles and follow along, we're going to be looking at the book of Job again this morning. We're in the midst of our sermon series through Job. God and Suffering is the title, and the reason we call it that is because that's what the book addresses. It focuses on the topic of God, God's sovereignty, His purposes, and of course the suffering of Job, who is a type of Christ. He prefigures our Lord and Savior, who was exalted, made himself low, and then, and then was raised up again. So if you'd like to turn to Job 12, we're going to be straddling a couple of chapters. So we're going to start at Job chapter 12, verse 1, and we're going to be reading and covering up into Job chapter 13, verse 12. So chapter 12, verse 1 through chapter 13, verse 12. Kind of cut into chapter 13 a little bit. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we come in faith. We come expectantly. And Father, first and foremost, we ask that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit so that we can understand this passage. We want to understand your word. And so we ask that in faith. Father, also allow us to take what you teach us and apply it. We pray that these words don't simply go in through the ear gate and then are forgotten, but instead they they go in and find their mark in our hearts, and our souls, and in how we live out our lives before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, and know when to run. I think a lot of us could probably finish the rest of this. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Yeah, that's a really familiar lyrics, uh, at least in my generation. This was a song not written by, but made popular by Kenny Rogers, 1978, called The Gambler. And the song begins, this is the chorus, but it begins with uh, two men on a train one warm summer evening, and it's in the middle of the night, neither of them can sleep. And so the older man decides to pass on a little life wisdom to the younger man. And he begins telling them, you've got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them. And it's very quickly that he realized that he's not just talking about card playing. It's a metaphor for life. He's he's speaking about making the right decisions, know when to fold them. That means when to let things go, when to ignore something, or or to uh, just move on, not to make a big deal about something. Know when to hold them. That means uh, when to stick with it, when to persevere and keep going, not to give up, to buckle down and refuse to let something go or to refuse to, to give up on something. And so that's, that's what the song's about. It's this life lesson about making right decisions, know when to fold them, know when to hold them. And as we look at chapters 12 and 13 this morning in the book of Job, Job decides to hold them. He decides to hold them. He refuses to let the words of Zophar and the other two friends go. He he says, no, I'm going to answer that. I'm not just going to ignore it. I'm not just going to let it go. I need to respond. 
And so he does. Now let's remember the context. Before we read this passage, let's remember the context. Zophar, who is one of the three friends who came to comfort Job, just finished speaking. And he insulted him. Remember, he calls him stupid. That's a personal insult. But he also told Job with a raging, I'm better than you attitude. He, he told them, this is how God operates. This is who God is. You've got it wrong, Job. This, this, let me speak to you. I will tell you the truth about who God is and, and how to make sense of everything that's happened to you. I will speak on behalf of God, Zophar says. Now, Job could have folded. He could have just said, eh. you know, he wasn't feeling his best. He could have just said, I'm, I'm just going to let that go. I'm not going to respond. But instead, he decided to hold him. He refused to let Zophar's words go. Why? Why did he decide to hold him? I think the answer to that question, and we're going to get to it, that's going to help us apply this passage to our own life. So let's now look at Job chapter 12 and the beginning of 13. Then Job answered and said, No doubt you are the people, and wisdom will die with you. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know such things as these? I am a laughingstock to my friends. I, who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughingstock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. The tents of robbers are at peace, and those who provoke God are secure, who bring their God in their hand. But ask the beasts, and they will tell you, excuse me, they will teach you, the birds of the heavens, and they will tell you, or the bushes of the earth, and they will teach you, and the fish of the sea will declare to you, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind. Does not the ear test words as the palate tastes food? Wisdom is with the aged, and understanding and length of days. With God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, no one can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, no one can open. If he withholds the waters, they dry up. If he sends them out, they overwhelm the land. With him are strength and sound wisdom. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away stripped and judges he makes fools. He loses the bonds of kings and binds a waistcloth on their hips. He leads priests away stripped and overthrows the haughty, excuse me, the mighty. He de deprives of speech those who are trusted and takes away the discernment of the elders. He pours contempt on princes and looses the belt of the strong. He uncovers the deeps out of darkness and brings deep darkness to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. He takes away understanding from the chiefs of the people of the earth and makes them wander in a trackless waste. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty, 
and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewashed with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent, and it would be your wisdom. Hear now my argument, and listen to the pleading of my lips. Will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? Will you show partiality toward him? Will you plead the case for God? Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? He will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. Will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Your maxims are proverbs of ashes and your defenses, excuse me, and your defenses are defenses of clay. Job decides to hold them. I'm not going to let these words go unanswered. So the first thing he responds with is, you know what, so far, you're not better than I am. You're not. Verses 1 and 2 are sarcastic. No doubt you are the people and wisdom will die with you. You can, you can almost hear it. It's dripping with sarcasm. Oh, you are the one. You, you, you are the ones. If you die, all wisdom dies with you. You're that great. That's, that's essentially what, what he's saying. Roughly paraphrased. Verse 3. You're not better than I am. You don't know more than me. He says, I am not inferior to you. I'm not just going to let this go. And then he says, who does not know such things as these? In other words, he's saying to Zophar, you're not telling me anything I don't already know. You're, you're not telling me or you're not saying anything that, that other people, the average person walking down the street, the ancient Near East, you're, you're not telling me anything that they don't already know. You're telling me common knowledge. You're telling me um, uh, uh, conventional wisdom. And then verse 4, I... I am a laughing stock. This is almost a little parenthetical statement where Job is saying, uh, yes, I realize the absurdity of the situation that I'm in right now. I, I don't understand it. I don't understand how I went from living in relationship with God where I called to him and he answered me. I was this blameless and upright man and now I'm at the bottom. I am a laughing stock to all who see me. I realize the absurdity and that this doesn't make sense. Yes, I, Job, am a laughingstock. But then in verse 5, he quickly, quickly turns it around on them. Uh, in the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. He's saying, right, you guys are enjoying this a little too much. This is fun for you to see someone who's down there in the ash heap and you're up here all healthy and, and wealthy you're enjoying the fact that my foot has slipped. And you see it as an opportunity to pour out contempt and criticism. Verse 6, don't assume you're better than me. The fact that everything is going well for you is not an indicator that God is pleased with you. And then he cites some examples. The tents of robbers are at peace. Those who provoke God are secure. You see what he's saying? He's, he's saying you're... you're your philosophy, uh, we've called it Bildad's shoe, this idea that God rewards those and gives good things to people who are good and, and he gives bad things and punishes people who are, who are bad in this life, he's saying that doesn't work. I've seen it. I've seen evil people who are at ease. I've seen the wicked prosper. So that, that doesn't work. I remember um, talking with a woman several years ago who 
there, there was this very large, you know, bustling uh, local church in a relatively small town. And the pastor was, um, to put it kindly, not above reproach, but yet people were looking at it and she said, well, he must be doing something right. And I remember thinking, that's, that's not how it works. That's not how it works. That's what Job's saying. He's saying, you can't, you can't point to somebody and say, well, they are, they're wealthy, they're healthy, things are going well, they, they must be doing something right. Job says, no. That's not how it works. Those who bring their God in their hand, what is he talking about? Idolaters. Idolaters. If you can pick up your God that's carved out of stone or metal or wood or something like that, if you can pick up your God and, and take him with you, if you can tuck him into your back pocket, what kind of a God is that really? It's idolatry. He's saying even idolaters can, can be doing okay in this world. Verses 7 and 9, what God does whatever God wills. That's, that's what we're going to call this next section. So Job lists off examples of creations and created creatures and his point is this, even they get it. E- even God's created world gets it. If you can ask, and he, he lists off some things, the beasts, the birds, the bushes, the fishes, they will teach you, they will tell you, they will declare to you. They all get it. They all understand that, that your neat, tidy little philosophy of, of almost karma, uh, it's almost the same idea as karma, that good things happen to good people, and bad things happen to bad things. He says they understand that. That's not true. Creation testifies to that. Verse 10, God has all things and all people in his hands at all times. And he does whatever God wills. And remember, God's will is perfect. He is infallible. He is incapable of making error. Verses 11 and 12, Job has tasted and tested the words of his friends, and they do not taste good. They do not taste good. Wisdom is with the aged and understanding and length of days, yet his three friends seem to be lacking them both. They neither have wisdom nor understanding. Verse 13, you, you all, you three friends, you are not a source of wisdom. God is. With God is wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. And then what follows is, is Job teaching and, and telling his friends that, that God is the one with the power and the might. And so he lists several examples in the next few verses, verses 14 through 25. He begins to lay out his case. He gives several examples of, of why he's right, of why what he's saying about God is true. Verse 14, no one can resist God's power. Verse 15, God commands all creation, even the waters, which remember in the ancient Near East were often viewed as a source of chaos, uh, evil, unrest, the, the ocean waters especially were untamed. They were full of mystery. And even up into the last several centuries, even if you get into the 1700s, 1800s, there was still, there was still a lot of superstition among sailors and among people who would go on these you know, sailing ships. They were very unsure about the waters and the deep and what might be contained in them. God commands the waters. Verses 16 through 21, all people are under God's sovereign rule both the deceived and the deceiver. And then he lists off counselors, judges, kings, priests, the mighty, the wise, the elders, princes, the strong. It doesn't matter who someone is. God 
is sovereign. No one is above God. He raises up and he brings down. God does whatever God wills. God is the one who reveals or, or conceals. He can plunge someone into darkness or bring something to light. God brings understanding. And then verse 23, not just people, but entire nations. God raises up nations. God reserves the right to raise up empires and nations as he wishes and also to bring them down as he wishes according to his good counsel and his will. Verses 24 and 25, God gives understanding and takes it away. He can raise up leaders or he can bring leaders down. That is not a problem for God. He can frustrate their counsel. He can remove understanding and allow them to grope around as in darkness. So God's power is irresistible. His acts are unchangeable. He does whatever he wants to according to his perfect will. And essentially what Job is saying, with all these examples, he's saying, don't box God in. Don't try to take God and make him fit into this tiny little neat package with it's all wrapped up with a bow that says everything can be explained by this one little philosophy. Good things happen to good things, uh, good people, bad things happen to bad things, uh, bad people. Job's saying, that's not it. And then he lays out his case. Don't, don't try to box God in. Your counsel is no good so far. And then we move to chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. I have seen this, and this is how God operates. This is who he is. I hear you. I know what you're saying. You're wrong. This is who God is. I am not inferior to you. And then we have, you can see that bookended. We've got a little inclusio. 12, uh, Job 12, 3, the first half, and then Job 13, 2 are essentially, they're, they're, they're parallel. Uh, Job 12.3, but I have understanding as well as you, I am not inferior to you. And then Job 13.2, what you know, I also know, I am not inferior to you. You can see how they almost parallel each other exactly. In fact, the last half is exactly the same. So, so far you're not better than I am. And in fact, I've got a better understanding than you do. And I couldn't just let it go. I couldn't fold them after what you said. Verse 3, I want to talk to God, but I would speak to the Almighty. Job is saying, I am done with you guys. Stop. No more. I just want to talk to God. This, this is not productive, this conversation that we're having. I want to talk to God. I want to talk to him directly. And you can hear that longing in Job's heart that we've seen reflected or has come out in earlier chapters. He's looking for that day in court. He's looking for that day of vindication where he can stand before God and everything can be heard. All the evidence can be laid out. And surely, if Job would have that opportunity, then he would be shown to be in the right. But he's had enough of these friends. Put that in air quote. And he lashes out at them. As for you, you whitewash with lies. He's calling them liars. Worthless physicians are you all. I'm done with you. You're not helping me. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. I think the best thing for you to do right now is just be quiet. This is the ancient Near East way of saying shut up to his friends. And then finally, a deserved warning, verses 6 through the end um, that we're looking at, verses 6 through 12. Uh, you, you three have spoken enough. It's now my turn. Hear now my argument and listen to the pleading of my lips. He's about to question them. So we're going to see a series of six questions 
Uh, this section closes out with six questions from Job. It's designed to check their arrogance. It's designed to give them a warning because they're engaging in some serious sin. And so he wants to, 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 to check it. And so he asks a series of questions. Now remember, they've been claiming to, speaking, to be speaking on behalf of God. They, they're, they're, they've been claiming to, to uh, essentially speaking on God's behalf, and they have misrepresented God. So Job checks their arrogance. Question number one, will you speak falsely for God and speak deceitfully for him? And that's essentially the charge. That, that question is Job charging them with mis- misrepresenting God, which is blasphemy. And then questions two and three go together. Will you show partiality toward him, and will you plead the case for God? So the, the sense here is that Job and, and God are the two parties, and the three friends have, have come in, and they've acted as someone who is assessing the situation and almost acting as, as judges, and, and have kind of looked at both sides, and then rendering what they think is the correct interpretation of what's going on. And Job is saying, you're, you're showing partiality to God. Job is saying, it doesn't really matter what I've done, it doesn't matter what I've said, it doesn't matter what I tell you, you're already siding with God. You're already pointing to me as the one who has, has sinned, as the one who is guilty and who deserves this. You're showing partiality to God. And then that second part, will you uh, plead the case for God? Job is saying, look, and also, you've gone too far. You're acting presumptuously. You think that it's okay for you to come in and act as this kind of assessor and, and judge and decide between the two of us. You think it's, it's okay that you're speaking on behalf of God and putting me in my place. Your courtroom performance is a complete fail, Job, Job's saying. The next two questions kind of go together. Will it be well with you when he searches you out? Or can you deceive him as one deceives a man? Job's saying, how, how do you think it would turn out if you were the defendant? Let's, let's switch roles for a minute, Zophar and, and the other three friends, or the other two friends. If the tables were turned, how do you think it would go for you? Hmm? Do you think you could fool God? Do you think you can hide something from him? Verses 10 and 11, he will surely rebuke you if in secret you show partiality. As you are misrepresenting God, that will not remain hidden from him. He will find you out. God sees what you're doing, and you three have a rebuke coming. And of course, they do. At the end of the book, we're told that, chapter 42. They are rebuked by God. And then the last question, will not his majesty terrify you and the dread of him fall upon you? Job's saying, you know what, if the tables were turned, you would not be able to stand so arrogantly and proudly. You, you would be brought low, fast, quick, and in a hurry. The final verse that we're looking at, verse 12, your maxims are proverbs of ashes, and your defenses are defenses of clay. What's, what's clay? Brittle. Easily broken. Not stone, not metal. He's saying your, your defenses are weak. They're easily destroyed. Everything you're, you're saying, you have, you have no case so far and the three friends. Your, your cases and your words are worthless. 
Well, this is Job refusing to let it go. This is Job, Job holding them. This is Job holding them. With what little strength he has, he pushes back against the words of his friends. And he says, you know what? No, I'm not going to let that go. I'm going to respond to that. And, and we saw that in Clusio. I am not inferior to you. You don't know what you're talking about. Here's, here's the real deal. Here, here's what it, it really means. Here's what God's really doing. Here's how his character really is. This is how he acts. Not what you said. And so he pushes back. And then he gives some examples. He cites some examples of, of why they're wrong and why he's right. And, he, and he's correct. Job was right. So Job may be down, but he's not out. He has some fight left in him. He has, he has a little spirit left, even as much as he's been crushed. And it's especially true when he's responding to the topic of God and God's truth. That's what has Job fired up. We asked the question in the beginning, why? Why did he choose to hold him instead of pull him? It's because he's re responding to, to misrepresentation of God. He won't let that go. He's passionate about God and God's truth. And I find it interesting that not only does he correct his friends, but he calls them out as liars at 13.4, as for you, you whitewash with lies, and he warns them. He warns them. He tells them they need to watch their back because God is not going to put up with people who misrepresent him. So if we put it all together, this is a strong response. This is a strong response from Job, who is physically extremely weak. And I think his response helps us to be able to apply this passage. It helps us to be able to know when to hold them and when to fold them. And we all understand there's times when it is wise to fold them. There are times when it's wise just to let it go. Uh, personal insults, like someone calling you stupid. Okay, that's a fold them scenario. Who cares? Uh, most people learn this early on as children. I don't know how many remember, but I do definitely remember my mother saying to me, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt me. And then she explained what that meant. There's going to be people who call you names in life. And it doesn't stop when you're a child. It goes on in your adulthood. People are going to be critical. People are going to say things against you. Fold them. Who cares? It doesn't matter. And there's going to be other times when as believers, both as individuals and collectively as the church, universal, the church, capital C, where we should just fold them and walk away. Usually this is issues that do not contain truth issues or God issues. Issues that do not contain truth issues or God issues. For example, there was a, an elder that was in a church uh, way down south somewhere, and this particular elder was known to be argumentative during elder meetings. And they were deciding on the color of the sanctuary carpet. And there was one group that wanted red, and there was another group that wanted blue. And it was known that this particular argumentative elder wanted blue. He'd been very vocal about it. And so the day of the meeting arrived, and everyone was kind of uh, you know, not looking forward to going into the meeting. And they got to the agenda item on carpet color, and 
One person gathered up enough courage and they said, you know, I've been thinking about it, I've been talking to a lot of people, and I think what we've decided is the best way to go is red carpet. And then they kind of looked over at the, the argumentative elder and he said, well, I suppose red is as good a color as any. And they all kind of were shocked and the meeting went on. And then at the end of the meeting, they came, one of the members came up to the argumentative one and he said, you know, I was really kind of expecting uh, that you might want to argue for the other color. And he said, you know what? I, I fight hard when it's a matter of, of truth or when I think it's a matter of importance regarding the worship of God or the instruction of God. He said, but when it comes to things like this, it doesn't really matter. And he's right. Fold them. doesn't matter. And I'm sure you can probably think of all kinds of examples when it's best just to let things go, just to fold them. But when it comes to the truth of God, that's a time to hold them. That's when it's important to persevere, to double down. To go all the way. And that's what Job did. That's what Job did. If you look at the bulk of Job's response, it's the truth of God that has him pumped up. That's what he's responding to. Yes, he was called stupid. Yes, uh, he, was, uh, it was, uh, he said, but a stupid man will get understanding when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. He was talking about Job back in chapter 11. But he kind of lets that one, he folds on that one. What, what really has Job worked up as the truth of God. He's refusing to let the words of his three friends go because they are misrepresenting the truth of God. Now many believers, churches, and whole denominations have slipped into complacency and then apathy and finally full-on apostasy because they have not learned when the right time is to hold them and instead have folded the inerrancy of Scripture, the full humanity and full deity of Jesus Christ, the doctrine of the Trinity, bodily resurrection of Jesus, the creation of the universe and everything in it by God ex nihilo, meaning out of nothing, in six days. The final judgment, heaven and hell, justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. These are hold'em issues. These are hold'em issues. All these things and others. Because they are the truth. So when we hear these things, being challenged or weakened or deluded by professing believers, that's the time to hold them. Notice I said professing believers, not unbelievers. I don't expect the average unbeliever walking down the street to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. I doubt they could explain that what that means or define it adequately, in fact. So I'm not going to get too worked up when I run into an unbeliever. I'm not going to spend too much time arguing with unbelievers on these issues because they're not going to believe them because they don't have the Spirit of Christ in them. We talked about that last week. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. When God's Spirit calls someone to Him, He gives them new heart, new desires, and He opens their eyes to give them understanding of the truths of God. Until that happens, they're not going to embrace those things. So we can talk to them, we can engage in conversation, but I'm not going to spend a long time arguing about them. Instead, I'm going to focus on evangelism. I'm going to, going to explain that salvation and, and the forgiveness of sins is through faith in Christ alone. And I'll explain what that means, what grace means, how it's not what you do or a good person about. It. It's about what Jesus has done on the cross. Those are the things we want to spend time with unbelievers on. We should be praying for and seeking the salvation of unbelievers. No, it's, it's professing believers. When, when, it's, when it's someone who professes faith in Christ, it's when they're attacking these things. That's when it's time to hold them. 
So one-on-one, small groups, Bible studies, pulpits, elder meetings, denominational meetings, and seminaries. That's when the truth of God must be held with tenacity. So it's in these contexts where the believer, where believers like you, you and I, and collectively as the church, must refuse to let the truth of God go. It's a hold in time. I've heard more than one speaker at uh, denominational meetings and in small group settings and in, and in various churches introduce one small step, one, one small degree uh, walking away from the truth of God on some of these important issues. And they'll usually label orthodoxy as uh, traditionalism or legalism. That's usually a good tactic. But then that's followed up by this speech. They'll say, now, now, let's all calm down. If we vote yes on this, that doesn't mean that we're going to vote yes on all this other stuff that comes downstream that we've seen in all these other churches. We're just trying to reach a compromise here. So don't think that this is a slippery slope that we can't come back from. It's always a slippery slope. It's always a slippery slope. On these issues where we're called to hold them, there is no compromise. There is no one or two degrees away from the truth of God. That is exactly how Satan operates. Satan doesn't operate by explosion, but by erosion. He doesn't ask for one big denial and a, and a crumpling up of all our doctrine and throwing it away. Instead, he just says, well, let's just, let's just think about this for a minute. Let's, let's just come over here one step, and then a little bit later, another step, and another step. It's always a slippery slope. So please do not believe the lie of anyone who tells you that it's not. Now, so far, these examples have been fairly clear-cut. I hope we wouldn't get too many arguments about when to hold them and when to fold them, holding it on doctrine and, and truth issues and folding it on things like the carpet. I, I think we all probably on the same page on that. I hope so. But what about times when things aren't so clear-cut? What about times when we're not sure? It's, it's, it's not really a historical doctrine or of the church or, or something that, that, is, that has been held to or, or reformational truth that's, you know, justification by faith alone. It's, it's not that clear. It's kind of foggy. Then what? How do we know when to hold them and when, when to fold them? Now, I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but the past couple of years have presented both the society as a whole and as us as individuals and as local churches with um, decisions that we've never had to face before. I call it unplowed ground. There's been a lot of unplowed ground in the last year and a half. And if pressed, I would say we're probably not done. So because we have a lot more unplowed ground laying before us, it may become increasingly difficult to know when to hold them and when to fold them as believers. Because they're not going to come like a fastball straight down the middle. They're going to be a curveball. They're going to be, they're going to be all over the place. They're going to be right between that, that strike zone and, and, the, and the ball zone. But we're not sure exactly if to swing or to check. Here's where we have a huge advantage over Job. Number one, we have the full revelation of God before us. 
to aid us in discerning whether or not to hold them or fold them on decisions that aren't clear-cut. Remember, Job was making all his arguments without one scrap of Scripture. He had neither the Old Testament nor the New. How did he do? I would say very well. I would say excellent. Well done, Job. He was defending the nature and character of God without one word of Scripture. We have the entire thing. We have the full revelation of God. We have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, we have the finished special revelation of God before us. That is a huge advantage in knowing when to hold them and when to fold them as we try to discern on some of these unplowed ground issues. So we have the Word of God before us. Let's not, let's not discount that as something small. That is huge. Number two, we have one another. Job was very alone. What did he say at the beginning? I'm a laughingstock. I, Job, who used to be up here, now I'm down here. The entire community views me as a laughingstock. Here are my three friends. How did they do his friends? Failed. They weren't his friends. They were calling him stupid. They weren't listening to him. Even his own wife had turned on him. His children were gone. They were killed. He was very alone. In contrast, we are not alone. We have one another. I remember talking with a, a young man several years ago, and he had, had young children, and he was in the midst of just doing life. And he said, you know, I wish I had a round table. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, like back in the, the legend of King Arthur, they had that, that round table with all the knights that would come around. He said, I said yeah, I know. And... Yes, the idea was that all were equal and that he could access the counsel of them all, when in reality, some say it was because all the knights refused to take a position lower on the table, so he had to make a round table. But regardless of, of whether or not that's true, the idea was there was this round table of all these trusted knights that he could call on the counsel of, and specialties and expertise in each one as needed. And he said, I just wish I had a round table, you know? With some of these things, I don't know, it's tough to decide what to do. I said, I've got an idea of, of kind of who I'd like to have, and it would be nice to convene the round table, be able to ask them a question, and then after I get the combined wisdom of the, the council of the round table, then I could go and, and more confidently make my decision. We can all have a round table if we want it. We are not alone. God has given us brothers and sisters in Christ, to be that round table. As we head into unplowed ground, we don't have to make decisions in isolation. We don't have to make decisions as, as individual islands. Your men's group could be your round table. Your women's Bible study could be your round table. Your community group could be your round table. Or you could, you could customize it. You could, you could hand select somebody in, in, in church or even somewhere else. Any brother and sister you know, so you know what, I'd like to be, I'd like to have you as part of my round table. We're not alone. Job was very alone, but we are not. Job was alone and did not have one page of scripture to consult. And yet, and yet, he made the right call. And he knew when to hold him. He knew when to take a stand. He knew when not to let it go. He refused to let their words go. In contrast, we have the full revelation of God 
and we never have to be alone. May God give us humility when it's time to fold them. May God give us boldness when it's time to hold them. And may God give us wisdom and discernment as we navigate the unplowed ground that lies before us. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for our salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has paid the price that we are not our own. That the shed blood of Jesus paid the penalty for our, soul, for our sin. Father, we thank you that it is through faith alone that we can be called children of God. Father, we also pray for wisdom. We pray for, for wisdom to discern some of these gray areas. Please do give us the boldness and humility we need when some of these decisions are clear-cut. It's, it's one thing to say we're going to hold them. It's another thing to actually do it and to carry out um, standing on, on your truth and your word alone no matter what the consequences or circumstances. But Father, it's, these, it's this unplowed ground that we're asking for help. Help us to continue to lean on your word, your spirit, and on our brothers and sisters that you've given us so we can make the right call. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.